Hello there and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. We have such a ridiculous amount of things to discuss this week. And that's because, you know, we have the NCAA tournament upcoming. Not to mention next week I will not, uh, we will not have a show next week because I will be very fortunate that I will be back in Providence once again to cover the, the EHL's Frozen Finals tournament. Second year I'm doing it in Providence. Third year that I'll be doing it in my three years with the league. Very flattered, honored, and excited to be doing it again. I'll also be doing, I'll be doing ringside reporting for the EHL games and color commentary alongside my 87th broadcast partner, Anthony DiPaolo, for the EHLP games. So that will be very exciting. I'm, I'm really pumped just to get back up there and see everybody. It's just a, a really cool environment. So that's so that that actually contributes to this because instead of doing my March Madness picks just through the first two rounds, just through this week, I'm going to do it all the way through the Elite Eight. So that that doubles that aspect right there. Then we also have this huge NFL free agency period, an outrageous, outrageous period. And on top of that, it's, you know, once every, I mean, it's, it's varied at times, but it seems like now they're trying to shoot for once every four years that we have the World Baseball Classic in March. And we'll talk a little bit about that at the end. But we get started with Marquette defeating Xavier 65-51 to in the Big East Tournament title game. Of course, the Big East Tournament, closer to my heart just because I covered Seton Hall basketball for four years. I was a Seton Hall grad, and I was uh, i probably mentioned this the first episode. I probably mentioned this to people too much because, you know, it's that sort of glory days, what could have been type thing. But I was about six hours away from calling Seton Hall against, you know what's funny? I actually can't remember at this point if it was Xavier or Butler that they would have played in the quarterfinals of that tournament, the day that everything was shut down. Pretty much the day everything was shut down, which I believe was Thursday, March 12th, 2020. I would have been on play-by-play. I had never called a game at the Garden. I still have not called a game at the Garden. Uh, but Marquette, that, that's why I'm so in tuned with the Big East, if any conference. Marquette defeating Xavier, 65-51 Marquette, finishing as one of the best teams in the country this year, they are a number two seed, I believe. They were sixth in the country at the time. Of course, it's a weird type year in that it's the first year without Jay Wright as Villanova's head coach, and uh, of course, it's a, it's another weird year in that Seton Hall is in their first year without Kevin Willard as their head coach. So, two of the best, maybe the two best programs in the last close to a decade or so are w- without their their real head honchos and so it's because of that that neither of those teams actually made the tournament those two teams have perhaps been the two big, the two blue bloods obviously Villanova's competed more on a national stage but I, those those are the darlings of the big east in the last i think you can put them on a pedestal together and especially for how many times they've faced each other in the big east tournament in recent memory, and that's been a very close battle. Villanova's won more games, but Seton Hall, if Seton Hall loses, it's a very close game most of the time. So it's those two teams, but you also have these incredible programs, most notably the ones that have come out of, uh, a couple that have come out of the Midwest that are kind of this new addition to the Big East since the conference reformed in 2013. 
Marquette and Creighton were two of the best teams in the conference, two of the best teams in the country this year. Xavier made a run. That, that's another team that's sort of that Western branch. That was phenomenal. UConn returning to the Big East a couple of years ago. I kind of wish I was around for UConn. I, I, I think it was the year after I graduated that UConn rejoined the Big East, and that would have been really exciting to see. But, of course, UConn is, at least in the end... At least in the in the era after Al McGuire turned down the the NIT or turned down the NCAA tournament invitation, they made it mandatory for you to take it. In that era, UConn has been the best team to to come out of the Big East. And then finally, you have Providence, and I can tell you just from having worked the Big East Media Day that Ed Cooley is as revered and beloved a head coach as there is in that conference. So you have a few really big contenders, even though Providence is an 11 seed in the NCAA tournament. You have a few really good teams coming out of that conference this year, but a credit to Marquette and a credit to Shaka Smart, who has rightfully gotten Big East Coach of the Year. Unfortunately for Georgetown and for Patrick Ewing, or well, actually in some ways it, it's... It's a good thing for Georgetown. Patrick Ewing is done as Georgetown's head coach after six seasons. Did win one Big East tournament title, but a, a, a very surprising title. And Georgetown, it, for, for his six years there, it was a team that definitely did not live up to expectations. And, you know, sometimes players can't, transition to leadership roles. You know, you look at baseball and a lot of times the best players, the, the best managers were, you know, backup catchers. And it's not necessarily the best guy. You look at Wayne Gretzky, the great, I would argue the greatest single sport athlete ever, was a head coach for a time when the Coyotes didn't have a great run. I think he may have made the playoffs one year, but it doesn't always translate. And so it, it's, it's it, that's that's also kind of the slippery sl slippery slope because Patrick Ewing is probably the greatest player in the history of that Georgetown program, a program that won a national championship under him, that I believe played in the national championship game or made the final four at least I think three times in his four years there, and was an absolute powerhouse. But that's the thing. It, it, it's almost like the thing about you know don't meet your heroes because it's just, it's just kind of going to be a letdown. That's the, the slippery slope. And I hope that that doesn't really affect Patrick Ewing's standing with the, you know, with, with the fan base and the, the, the alumni group. It, it would just be unfortunate if that was the case. Because ultimately, they did win a Big East tournament title. That is something you can't take away from him. And he is, I would argue, still probably the best coach, best coach, best player in the history of the program. And probably, I mean, with the possible exception of Allen Iverson, maybe, maybe the best NBA player to come out of Georgetown. So, a very disappointing end there. And, you know, I think when we saw, you know, the transfers with, I remember when I was at Seton Hall, the transfers with McClung and, and you know, the, the James Akinjo in particular, and that that was just a bad sign right there because those guys really carried the the team. So very disappointing ending, but it's a, it's a step that Georgetown really had to make.
one more coaching change. We like Georgetown. I believe we don't know who's coming next, but Jim Beheim has opted to retire after over four decades as the head coach of the Syracuse Orangemen. Was inducted into the basketball the basketball Hall of Fame a number of years ago. I think it was well over a decade ago. Ranks near the top of the all-time Division I men's basketball wins list. Won the national championship with Carmelo Anthony as their on-court leader. And funny enough, at Madison Square Garden in 2003 because people always talk about the, the schools for New York, at least, for, at least from an athletic standpoint, the schools for New York, you know, at least in recent years, have been St. John's and Syracuse. Difference is that Syracuse has a D1A football program. I, I think that, I don't think St. John's has a football program at all, but Syracuse, the heart of the state, and it's rather appropriate that that the one time they did win the national championship in men's basketball, it was downstate in New York, where in not geographically, but in terms of popularity, that's the center of New York. It's the center of the universe. And I don't believe they've had a Final Four at Madison Square Garden in those 20 years since then. I could also only imagine that Mike Krzyzewski retiring had some impact. You would have to think, because of how closely guys like Krzyzewski, Bayheim, Bobby Knight, I could even kind of throw Bob Huggins in that mix, that whole group of guys who are near the top of the all-time wins list. I don't, I don't look. I don't think there's any coach in college basketball history better than, or at least in men's college basketball history, better than John Wooden. Possible exception in college basketball overall being Gino Auriemma. But you know those guys, that 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 group of guys was really tied to the top of that list, and really tied together because you know Bobby Knight and Coach K both were at Army. And then just this this ACC tie between Bay, between Bayheim and Coach K, and you know Huggins is is such a respected head coach. These guys are all sort of East Coast, sort of Northeast, and uh, you know Syracuse not that far. I mean West Point's closer to the city, but not that far from West Point necessarily. Just respected guys in terms of what they did for their program, but also what they did for their guys off the court. They're very, they're very widely respected. And so I would have to imagine that coach K stepping down last year had a serious influence on Bayheim, but he probably wanted to, I mean, not to speculate too much on this, but you would have to think that makes a difference because they were such contemporaries. You know, you would have to think that he might be thinking, Okay, I just want to take this last year, and I want to appreciate it. And, and a guy who got to work with his kids a lot, so an all-time great stepping down. And, and Syracuse will try to make a change the way that Duke has made a change. And so it's funny with that, we break down the first four, technically the first five if you count the first four. We break down the first five rounds of the NCAA tournament. Again, I will not be putting out a show next week because that'll be the first day of our Frozen Finals tournament. But uh, so it's because of that that I'll, I'll make my picks all the way through the Elite Eight in this episode. 
Now, I'm not going to go necessarily too in-depth with all of these picks because, for one thing, time constraint. For another, even, you know, unless you're Joe Lenardi or somebody like that, somebody who actually does bracketology, I think it's very hard to know all of these teams. And, and you know, I I will admit, again, this is this is not my primary job. Hockey, at least at the moment, is my primary job, you know, from September through March. But I think I've, you know, I've followed the Big East at least to an extent. And I would say a little bit, my, my mom went to the University of Memphis. And so that's, I think, part of why I follow the American a little more. I follow the, the Big Ten a little bit. And so... That's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see that, uh, we'll see a little bit of, a little more commentary within those conferences, I would say, or, or maybe the bigger programs in, you know, the major five or six, really seven conferences in basketball when you can, when you count the American and the Big East. So let's start with the round of 64. I will bring up the round of 68. Round of 64, let's start, start with the South region, the number one Alabama Crimson Tide will take them over Texas A&M Corpus Christi, who did already defeat Southeast Missouri State. I picked A&M Corpus Christi. Not that that really matters in my bracket anyway. I'll take number nine, West Virginia, over number eight, Maryland. By the way, I'll just point out, if you want to follow along, just you know, just get on your bracket, take a look. I, again, Bob Huggins is more experienced. I worked, I called games for Kevin Willard's squads at Seton Hall. I actually interviewed him, funny enough, at, at in a game where they beat Maryland on the road, after they beat Maryland on the road. Uh, but, he, you know, his squad struggled early this season. They caught fire later, but I think I have more faith in West Virginia. And, you know, Willard, despite having great rosters and being a great head coach, I think, you know, they struggled a lot with, when he was at Seton Hall, they got some very unfair matchups. For example, when they won the Big East Tournament over Villanova, they were a sixth seed, which was maybe a little low. But what was crazier is that they were facing an 11-seeded Gonzaga late at night in Salt Lake City, which was far from a home game for them. And, you know, facing a, a, a Gonzaga team that was probably way too low at 11, especially what we've seen from them since then. So that's just one point to make. But... Willard had some squads at Seton Hall that probably should have gone a lot deeper even though they were knocked out in the first round or maybe the second round. Number 5, San Diego State over number 12, Charleston. Number 4, Virginia over number 13, Furman. Number 11, NC State. I will take for the upset over number 6, Creighton. NC State finished with a better overall record and more points per game than Creighton did. Creighton kind of crumbled in the Big East tournament. And so I'll take NC State for the upset. I don't have a ton of major upsets here. I think the lowest that that might be the the biggest gap I have is a six eleven, but you know that, that that's what I'm going with. Number three Baylor over number fourteen UC Santa Barbara. Number seven Missouri over number ten Utah State, and number two Arizona over number fifteen Princeton. Although I'd be lying if I said that that game I, I didn't think that game could be on upset alert in the East region. Number one, Purdue over number 16, Fairleigh Dickinson. And I think Fairleigh Dickinson will beat Texas Southern. I am actually very I actually live very close to Fairleigh Dickinson. And I think it, some people, if you've really watched the tournament in the last few years, you probably understand that for, you know, a 
a much smaller school, not even a, a mid-major school necessarily, but a smaller school, Fairleigh Dickinson is a very good program, so I'll take them to advance and play Purdue, but of course, you know, it's highly unlikely that a 16 beats a 1, it's happened only once. Number 8, Memphis over number 9, FAU. You know, again, I said my mom went to Memphis, but they legitimately do have one of the more underrated programs in the country. Memphis stunned Houston in the American title game. Of course, Houston was without their top scorer, and they lost narrowly in their last home regular season matchup to Houston. They lost on a buzzer beater. They lost their first game, I think, by it it was definitely single digits to Houston on the road. They are much better than their seed indicates. I don't think they should be an eight seed. I think they should be quite a bit higher, but I think the fact that they are in the American probably is a bit to their detriment, unfortunately. Number five, Duke over number 12, Oral Roberts. Credit to John Shire, who's the fact that he got Duke to a five seed in his first year after Coach K's retirement is very impressive. And so I have decent expectations for Duke. Number four, Tennessee over number 13, Louisiana. Number 11, Providence with an upset over number six, Kentucky. Again, Ed Cooley is one of the most revered coaches in the Big East. It's a conference with four solid teams this year, and that's despite having their two blue bloods in Marquette and Seton, Marquette Villanova and Seton Hall just very, very much struggle, at least by their standards, this season in their first year with new coaches. Providence is better offensively, and they took a game this year from each of those other three dominant teams, save for Xavier, in the Big East this year, they took one from Marquette, they took one from UConn, they took one from Creighton, and really can say there are, well, in that case, five really, really good teams in the Big East this year that were able to make the tournament. Number three, Kansas State over number 14, Montana State. Number seven, Michigan State over number 10, USC. I can tell you from having called a game my senior year, the game that actually won us the at WSOU, the the CBI for the best play-by-play broadcast. When Seton Hall played Michigan State, it was it was an emotional game. Of course, it was after Cassius Winston's brother had passed. It was a couple games after, and incredible game. Michigan State won by three, but that was one of those times where you saw it was the same thing to an extent. It was the same thing when Jay Wright came in after Villanova beat Seton Hall and I had called a game, that you see Tom Izzo and you see that, not regal, but that just professional, caring presence, a very very classy presence, and he is one of the most respected coaches in the country, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, the, the Spartans, it's been a tough year for Michigan State on their campus because they're, because of the shooting earlier this winter. And, it, it, you know, it's not to make light of it or, or you know, not, not to downplay it or anything and say that it's a small, it, because it's obviously a bigger story than sports, but I think this is going to be a very emotional group. We, we, I've spoken about this many times before that so many times you'll see teams play well because of their, and not because of their necessarily, but they are fueled in part by wanting to help their community and just give their community something to believe in. So, for example, again, you know, Red Sox and the Bruins post-Boston Marathon bombing, Yankees post-9-11. And, you know, we, we see this a lot. And so I, I think Michigan State 
even as a seven seed, can make a very deep run this year, and it, it will be a very, very emotional year because as good a football program as they have, from an athletic standpoint, they put more into their men's basketball program, I would say, than any other. So I'll take Michigan State to upset USC. And to round out that region, I'll take number two Marquette over number 15 Vermont. Shaka Smart has done a phenomenal job, maybe his best year as a head coach since he led VCU to the Final Four. In the Midwest, number one, Houston over number 16, Northern Kentucky. Again, Houston fell to Memphis in that title game in the American. I think it was by about a dozen, but they were without their leading score. Number nine, Auburn. I will take to upset number eight, Iowa. Miami, number five. I will take over number 12, Drake. Number four, Indiana over number 13, Kent State. I will say, actually, going back to Drake for a moment, there is a guy who actually went to Seton Hall, whose games I covered for a little bit, Darnell Brody transferred to Drake and has really found his stride as as sort of a number one guy, not playing the number one, but he has been a much bigger focal point for that program. So you never know with that one. Again, Indiana over Kent State. Number six, Iowa State over. I had taken number 11, Pittsburgh, to beat Mississippi State in the play-in, or the first four, and they did. So I'll take Iowa State to win that one. I uh, That's another one I got to do for... Seton Hall, I got to call a game at Iowa State. It's a great fan base, and they are very loud. And even though Pitt is, I think especially in, maybe not, even though Pitt is a great basketball school, Iowa State is very underrated. One of those schools that has a really solid football program, really solid basketball program, and just kind of goes under the radar. So really... Really interesting there. I will take number three, Xavier, over number 14, Kennesaw State. I will take number 10, Penn State, to upset number seven, Texas A&M. Penn State is hot after a surprising run to the Big Ten championship game, losing to Purdue. And so I, I will take Penn State with the upset there. Number two, Texas, over number 15, Colgate in the West. Number one, Kansas over number 16, Howard. Number nine, Illinois to upset number eight, Arkansas. Number five, St. Mary's over number 12, VCU. Number four, UConn over number 13, Iona. UConn and Iona have about an equal points per game allowed. Again, it, you, though UConn is in a better conference, but you know it, it is true. Iona has not played a top 25 team this year. And UConn not only has played top 25 teams within their own conference, let alone outside the conference, but they've also beaten Alabama a one seed by 15 points. Obviously, that was earlier in the year, much earlier in the year, because that's a non-conference opponent, but that's still rather significant. So I'll take UConn in that one. Don't be surprised with Iona, because again, you've got Rick Pitino as a head coach, guy who has a lot of experience. I Iona is a fine program. I can tell you again that Seton Hall has actually been influenced a lot by Iona in terms of they're coaching both on the men's and women's side. They've had coaches, both head and assistant, who have once coached for Iona. So, uh, you know, that's Iona is a, an excellent program. That's pr pretty much right in my backyard, actually, up in New Rochelle, I believe, which is not too far from me. So that could be an upset alert, but I would take UConn in that one. Number 11, Arizona State. I am taking to beat TCU after beating Nevada in the play-in. 
or rather the, the first four. I just, you know, I just, you think of play-in, you think of NBA now. Anyway, number three, Gonzaga. I will take over number 14, Grand Canyon. Number seven, Northwestern over number 10, Boise State. Number two, UCLA over number 15, UNC Asheville. Round of 32, I am taking number one, Alabama, to knock off number nine, West Virginia, in the south. The first two rounds for Alabama, if they get that far, well, regardless of whether they get that far, but still it would be to their advantage, would be played in Birmingham. So that's very significant. I'll take number four, Virginia, over number five, San Diego State. They are more defensively sound and more fundamentally sound than San Diego State. Obviously, they won the title. It's been four years, but Virginia still has that championship pedigree. And they have, considering San Diego State's on the West Coast, at least, relatively speaking, Orlando is home court for Virginia. Number three, Baylor over number 11, NC State. Once more, championship pedigree from two years ago for Baylor. They still have some holdovers. Number two, Arizona over number seven, Missouri. In the East, I am taking Memphis to upset Purdue. Number eight, Memphis over number one, Purdue. Memphis fans, first off, travel better than you think. And they can also run on a very large Purdue team. If Memphis can outrun Purdue and go to that sort of showtime offense that they are known for to an extent, they can beat Purdue. And they also have improved their free throw shooting rather significantly. That's one thing that's haunted them for a long, long time. But I am taking Memphis to upset Purdue. Columbus is a home court for Purdue, but it's not that far from Western Tennessee. Speaking of Tennessee, Duke, number five, I'm taking to upset number four, Tennessee. Duke, we know, always travels well, and they surprised many by capturing the ACC tournament. Number 11, Providence, that's, that's probably the biggest upset I'm taking, actually. Number 11, Providence, to knock off number three, Kansas State. Providence this year took one game each from UConn, Marquette, and Creighton. By the way, Providence and Kansas State, even though they are eight seeds apart within their respective region, they are only separated by 10 in the basketball power index for ESPN. And so I am taking Providence to pull off the upset there. Number seven, Michigan State, I'm taking to upset number two, Marquette. Michigan State, three points per game stronger, defensively speaking. They've allowed three fewer points per game. They lost to Gonzaga by only one this year. That's one of the best teams in the country. And this game will be played, this game would be played in Columbus. So, you know, Milwaukee, not that far from Columbus, but East Lansing, definitely closer. That could theoretically be a home court advantage for Marquette, especially when, rather for Michigan State, especially when you consider public school versus private school, public school versus Catholic school, larger enrollment for the public school, state school, et cetera, et cetera. So I can see Michigan State pulling this one off. In the Midwest, I'm taking number one, Houston, to knock off number nine, Auburn. Number four, Indiana, over number five, Miami. Number three, Xavier, over number six, Iowa State. So three of the top four seeds I think will advance. But I think, okay, this might actually be my biggest upset. Number 10, Penn State, to upset number two, Texas. Penn State this year not only made it to the final in the Big Ten tournament, they also swept Illinois, they swept Indiana, and they swept Northwestern, plus they split with Maryland this season. Yes, they ultimately lost, I believe, all their games to Purdue, if not at, le at least two, I believe, but this is a, a Penn State team that I think can make a serious run. In the West, number one, Kansas over number nine, Illinois. Number four, UConn over, over number five, St. Mary's. Number three, Gonzaga over number 11, Arizona State. And number two, UCLA over number seven, 
Northwestern, no upsets there. Moving on to the Sweet 16 in the South, I am taking Virginia at number four to upset number one Alabama. Championship pedigree, defensive intensity for Virginia. They are known for playing def well defensively as much as maybe any team in the country. They are 15 and five. I believe Alabama was. I think I had them down as 16 and three, 16 and four. But that's close enough. In ACC historically is a better conference in terms of basketball than the SEC, save for Kentucky, of course. But the ACC, arguably a better conference than the SEC this year. Virginia this season beat Duke, beat UNC, who didn't make the tournament, but still a significant victory, beat Duke, beat Baylor as well. And Alabama has very few weaknesses. One of them is foul trouble. The other one is turnovers, and that will play right into Virginia's game. So I'm taking Virginia with the upset there, and I will also take number two, Arizona, over number three, Baylor. In the East, I have four lower seeds, a 5, a 7, an 8, and an 11 in the Sweet 16. And so why not another upset, number 8 Memphis over number 5 Duke? Because, you know, it's different, I think, if it's it's not Coach K there. So in that case, it's ultimately a more experienced head coach in Penny Hardaway, a guy who is kind of due a battle-tested team in Memphis, having played Houston, and then if they get through Purdue, even more so. And they do have a fan base that travels well enough, I think, to counter Duke's Northeast, you know, New York fan base. This this will be at Madison Square Garden, so this will be crazy. They, that will counter them to an extent. So I'm taking Memphis with the upset. Number seven, Michigan State over number 11, Providence. Again, geography has a lot to do with this. Providence is the closest major program to New York geographically in that bracket. I think it's like Fairleigh Dickinson and Providence are the only two in that region that are really that close to, I mean, Fairleigh Dickinson much more so. They're in uh, Teaneck and Madison, I think, here in New Jersey. But Providence, the only really significant program, big six or seven conference program that is relatively close to New York that is in that bracket. But even then, they're an 11 seed. But Duke, Michigan State, I remember there was a, a bracket years ago, I think they played at the Garden, I think it was like Duke, Michigan State, maybe UConn and one other team, and they all travel really well. UConn, of course, it will especially travel well with the Garden, but Duke and Michigan State have significant fan bases, and so Michigan State, I think is, for one thing, stronger defensively, and Tom Izzo is a more experienced leader, has played much more on a national level, deeper into the tournament than Ed coached deeper at a national level than Ed Cooley has, and also they have a well-traveled fan base, so I'm taking Michigan State. In the Midwest, number one Houston over number four Indiana, number 10 Penn State over number three Xavier. Now, Xavier has struggled a bit without Zach Fremantle. They bounced back relatively quick, quickly, but that couldn't, you know, you don't really know how long that is going to last with Fremantle done for the year. That was a significant loss for them, so I'm taking Penn State. And then lastly, in the West for the Sweet 16, number one, Kansas over number four, UConn. UConn has not gone this deep in the tournament in years. Kansas is the, is the defending champ. They have Bill Self as their head coach. They're more battle-tested. They played 20, 14, 14 games against top 25 teams this year. They went 500, which is reasonable because of the, the quantity, at least. They beat Duke they crushed Indiana earlier this year. Number three, Gonzaga, over number two, UCLA. Gonzaga is 
I know they haven't won it yet, but in recent years in particular, Gonzaga is probably the most battle-tested program in Division I basketball, and I'm picking them to beat, historically, the best team in the history of the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament in UCLA. Gonzaga is dominant offensively at 87.5 points per game. I know their conference is not that strong, save for St. Mary's, but the point still stands, and they had a better top 25 record than UCLA did this year. Now to the Elite Eight. In the South, number four, Virginia, over number two, Arizona. Virginia would absolutely have home court because this game would be played in Louisville, Kentucky. And so that, that would be just huge. In the East, number eight, Memphis, over number seven, Michigan State. Memphis actually has a higher ranking in the Basketball Power Index for ESPN than Michigan State by seven spaces. And they won seven more games in a very competitive American Athletic Conference. In the Midwest, number one Houston over number 10 Penn State. Houston, so good defensively. They're very balanced in terms of their scoring. They have a few guys with like 10, 11, 12 points. I think about three or four guys with that. Then their leading scorer with 17 Houston also allows under 57 points a game, which is ridiculous. That's lower, I think, even than Virginia. And in the West, number one Kansas over number three Gonzaga. Good defense beats good offense, but this I'm not saying this is going to be a blowout. This could be the best game of the tournament if it gets to that point. So that does it for my NCAA tournament picks. One more thing to discuss basketball-wise that I actually found out while I was recording the show, and that's that uh, John Morant was suspended eight games for conduct, conduct detrimental to the league. Now, I, I still actually, actually haven't seen this video. All I know is that if you're holding a gun in a video, you've done something pretty stupid. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a real shame, too, because John Morant was one of the more likable guys in this league. And... Uh, you know, a superstar for superstar for Memphis carried the organization, very likable, and you just go and do something really stupid like that. And eight games is probably a pretty fair suspension. Stupid enough to be have have a, a picture taken of you with a gun, even if it was, I'm if, to have a picture of you taken picture taken of you with a gun from a distance, let alone up close and personal, let alone you're the one who's putting it up let alone it's a video on Instagram and you're a public figure that's just incredible. Even if you were, you know, not a public figure, it's stupid, but God, that's dumb. Okay, so thanks to the NBA for finally doing something about that. Okay, going to try to run down this relatively quickly because there are a lot of free agent signings. I had to cut a few just to talk about this, just to cut a few for time. Alan Lazard signs a four-year, $44 million deal with the Jets. The Jets probably needed a little bit of improvement at the receiving core, but that wasn't their biggest issue. I think quarterback is probably the biggest issue. But of course, this is apparently to appease Aaron Rodgers, who has said to Pat McAfee that he intends to be a Jet. It's ridiculous that he's listing all these demands, that he can, that he is able to list any demands. I kind of think the Packers gave him a little too much agency in that just to make up for them not picking a receiver that high and picking Jordan Davis instead Jordan Davis Jordan Love instead 
and say, kind of giving him a blank check, not in terms of money, but in terms of what he would want. And he said, you know, give me Randall Cobb, which is not an unreasonable ask, you know, for, for, for a guy who has earned that much clout, I suppose, within the organization. But, you know, the, the power has gone to his head a bit. It, it does for a lot of guys, but I don't know. It's wild. I think the Jets might have overpaid a little bit, but if you sign Alan, Alan Lazard for four years, you can probably expect Aaron Rodgers is going to be your quarterback for four years, I would think. I don't know. Jeff Wilson Jr. returns to the Dolphins on a two-year, $8.2 million deal. Raheem Mostert returns to the Dolphins on a two-year, $7.6 million deal. The backs combined for 1,700 rushing yards, over 1,700 rushing yards last season between Miami and Wilson's time in San Francisco before he was traded. So it's a Dolphin team that will be, I think, better. Apparently, Tua Tagovailoa is coming back. We'll see as to his health. It's remarkable that he's playing football again. But they did. They he's coming back for that the, the fifth year option. So we shall see. But the Dolphins are a very very strong team, and I think considering Skylar Thompson was a quarterback, came especially close to upsetting the Bills in the divisional round or rather the wildcard round, pardon me. The Vikings had, it was a really weird week for the Vikings. They, they restructured Kirk Cousins' contract to save $16 million in 2023, allowing them to sign center Garrett Bradbury to a three-year deal. That's very important. The Vikings obviously need to, need to reinforce their offensive line. That was one of their biggest issues. Credit to Kirk Cousins for deferring payments. You see that with Guys like Tom Brady and the, the more, I would say, monetarily unselfish players, and quarterbacks in particular. So Brady always took less money with New England, deferred a bit of it so he could pay for a really good offensive line. And that's just smart. Vikings also signed former Saints defensive end Marcus Davenport to a one-year $13 million deal. They obviously needed improvement defensively. That was their biggest issue a couple of years ago. I mean, their front four is going to be even scarier now with Dalvin Tomlinson up the middle and then Marcus Davenport as well. Very strong team. It should be a strong team, at least in terms of the defensive line. Some unfortunate news for one thing. They, at least if you're a Viking fan, they cut Adam Thielen after nine seasons. This is a guy who... Could end up, it's it's possible he ends up in the Hall of Fame, even though he's really been a number two receiver for much of his career behind either Stephon Diggs or Justin Jefferson. But again, you know, you can't talk enough about how, I think, I th think he was undrafted, Minnesota State Mankato, Minnesota native. And he's really been as crucial as almost anyone, maybe as crucial as anyone to the organization since he got there. And, and you know, even... A couple of months ago before the Super Bowl, or last month before the Super Bowl, we saw him on, was it First Take? He was on some ESPN show, and he was in Arizona just talking about the Vikings and and how he'd like to finish his career with the Vikings, but you never know. He's uh, such a good player that I would think he has to catch on somewhere, but he will be probably forever remembered as a Minnesota Viking and is such a fantastic receiver. The far worse news was that Bud Grant passed away this week at the age of 95. Bud Grant, of course, was the head coach for the Vikings 
and led them to all four of their Super Bowl appearances to this point. Four-time NFC champion, technically an NFL champion in the pre, in the era of the first four Super Bowls when the, the two leagues had not technically merged yet. Member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So beloved within the state of Minnesota and beloved within the NFL. And first off, 95 is a long and lovely life. But Bud Grant was an ambassador for the Vikings and for the game in the latter years of his life. I think the last time I saw him, at least, was the Vikings' most recent playoff game where they fell to the Giants in the wild card round in Minnesota. And Bud Grant looked, hey, for 95, he looked fantastic, sitting in a suite at U.S. Bank Stadium. But he will probably be forever remembered for, besides obviously being a fantastic coach, and maybe because he did not win a Super Bowl, maybe the most underrated coach of all time, save for maybe Marv Levy, he will perhaps be most remembered by younger fans for the a game where for Vikings Nation it was very unfortunate for Vikings Nation that they ended up losing that game on a like just a bad missed chip shot by Blair Walsh. But that Seahawks Vikings game that I think was a below um, a negative two wind chill at kickoff, negative two negative two Fahrenheit wind chill at kickoff. This was the couple of years where they were playing at TCF Bank Stadium, home of University of Minnesota football. So it was an outdoor stadium, and they played there for a couple of years between the Metrodome roof collapsing and the opening of U.S. Bank Stadium. And Bud Grant comes out in a negative two degree wind chill with short sleeves on at age 88. It was either eight, I think I think he was about 88 years old, 87, 88 years old. And uh, <laughs> this guy was. A warrior. So love to his family, love to the Vikings family, the Vikings fan base. A, a, a beloved, just a beloved person. Gone, but far from forgotten. A, a long and, and I'm sure lovely life. As we move on here back into free agency, the Seahawks do release defensive tackle Quinton Jefferson. Despite the fact he posted a career back a career best five and a half sacks last year and did not miss a game. However, they release him in order to free up space and sign former Broncos DT Draymond Jones to a three-year $51 million deal. He had six and a half sacks last year and can provide run stoppage for a team that was ranked 28th in run defense in the NFL and yet still made the playoffs, had a very surprising season. One of the more significant moves of the week, the Giants acquired Darren Waller and a sixth-round pick from the Raiders in exchange for a third-rounder, specifically the third-rounder they acquired for Kadarius Toney. So really, they traded Kadarius Toney for Darren Waller and a sixth-rounder, which is probably a pretty fair deal. Waller is arguably the best tight end in the league, not named Travis Kelsey or George Kittle. Obviously, he's been injured in the last couple of years, but... He is was really the safety valve for Derek Carr in a very strong Raider offense. But he trailed only Travis Kelsey and Mark Andrews in yards at the position. He has trailed only those, those two guys in yards at the tight end position since 2019. In September, he signed a three-year extension with the Raiders 
So the Giants have him under contract for four years. It was a three-year, $51 million extension. And so that's a, that's a huge deal because the Giants were depleted in terms of receivers last year. That was probably their biggest issue. And uh, yeah, huge, huge deal for them. They also bring back punter Jamie Gillen on a two-year, $4 million deal. He had a career best in terms of yards per punt. They also re-signed Sterling Shepard to a one-year, $1.3 million deal. That is a base salary, so I would think there are some incentives involved there. Shepard, beloved by the Giants fan base, I believe he is actually their longest tenured active player now. Very good receiver when he's healthy, but unfortunately he has suffered a lot of injuries in the last few years, but nothing wrong whatsoever with them signing him. He is a solid, well, you know, it, 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 when he's fully healthy, I, he's really maybe a really good number two receiver, but, you know, we'll see Giants with a kind of a low-risk, high-reward signing there. The Raiders, in addition, also sign former Patriots wide receiver Jacoby Myers to a three-year, $33 million deal that reunites him with Josh McDaniels, who, of course, was in New England as Bill Belichick's OC for many years under multiple stints. Myers also, unfortunately for him, returns to a, a place with some pretty tough memories. He That's where he lay, may, he was the one who made the lateral that cost the Patriots the game in Las Vegas last season, or that Chandler Jones, another former Patriot, ran back for a touchdown. What an odd, odd play that was. Played four years in New England, had some pretty good numbers, 2,758 receiving yards, eight receiving touchdowns, helped them reach the playoffs twice. He was one of those guys that I think was rather unfairly criticized by fans for, for you know making it seem like Tom Brady did not have the weapons that he really needed at the receiver position, which again is outrageous because you know he's made you know he, he's made Julian Edelman or you know David Patton, David Givens, Dion Branch. He's made some of those guys not that they're not bad not that they're bad receivers whatsoever, but you know he's made them at times into better receivers because of that system, not just because of him, but because of Belichick. So I, I think Myers is a very fine receiver. I think 11 million is probably fair. Again, it's on pace for an average value with, with Alan Lazard, which I think again is very fair. And then he's also, you're also going to put him behind Devonte Adams. Now the Raiders do also make another interesting move in that they signed Jimmy Garoppolo to a three year, $67.5 million deal with $34 million guaranteed. Garoppolo, I would argue, had a successful tenure in San Francisco, got to the Super Bowl, then got hurt. Kind of similar to the, the Alex Smith's tenure, just, just shorter, of course, in that he got hurt before he could really hit his stride. And then got back, but of course got hurt again before they eventually reached the NFC Championship game. So that, that's, that's really pained him, but he certainly earned this deal. That being said, I don't understand this move because Jarrett Stidham played so well against a really good 49er defense in that last game. I know the Raiders weren't really playing for anything at that point, but I, I, I don't get it. I'd give Stidham a shot. Maybe they're going to try to, maybe they'll put them, maybe they'll have a QB competition. I don't know. But for how much they're paying Garoppolo, it would be ridiculous for him not to be the starter. I just don't quite understand this move by the Raiders. Then again, I didn't understand why the Raiders cut Carr in the first place because he had nothing to do with their downfall whatsoever. When you consider the 
you know, the, the, the turnover that they had had in terms of coaching and uh, with uh, front office and then the Antonio Brown situation wrecked everything. Totally unfair. Not to mention Carr's best year was probably was probably the year he ultimately got hurt down the stretch, and they had to play with, I think, Connor Cook. It was either Connor Cook or Matt McGloin in a playoff game where they lost to a Brock Osweiler-led Texans team. So, you know, not to mention you've played had to play in a conference with Patrick Mahomes. It, totally unfair. So it's a mess, but we'll see what Garoppolo can do for the Raiders, a team with a lot of promise, ultimately. The defending NFC champion Eagles signed Rashad Penny to a one-year deal. The former Seahawk, a solid player, but of course been injury-prone the last few years. Miles Sanders indicates through social media that his time with the team is very likely over. Makes it seem that his team, that his time with the Eagles is likely over. Rashad Penny, again, has suffered several injuries in the last few years, but has shown signs of such promise in Seattle and was really their number one back until he got hurt. Kenneth Walker III took over the starting job, was phenomenal coming out of Michigan State as a rookie. So clearly he's their number one guy. Penny's still very capable of being a number one guy. The thing is with the Eagles running back situation, I'm not sure they really have a definitive number one, nor do I think they had one last year, where it was a very, very balanced, not a balanced offense necessarily, but a balanced rushing attack, where it was a four-headed monster of Sanders, Kenny Gainwell, Boston Scott, who is apparently looks like he's on his way out as well, and Jalen Hurts. And so I think Penny, I think Scott is probably going to be gone. So it's probably going to be more so between Penny and Gainwell, who might have actually been their most impressive back last year, I might argue. Penny and Gainwell and then Hurts, maybe they'll sign another person, we'll see. But this is an interesting signing for the Eagles and not a bad replacement whatsoever, assuming they do cut Sanders. The Eagles also released Darius Slay. After three seasons and two Pro Bowl nods, helped them reach the Super Bowl this year. The Eagles, because of this though, are able to re-sign James Bradbury to a three-year, $38 million deal, which is huge for them. I still argue that their secondary was rather weak when they won the Super Bowl back in 2017. That was their one big weakness, obviously, if you look at that that game against the Patriots. The, you know, they gave up more passing yards to a quarterback in any Super Bowl ever but still held on because of a a great front seven and a phenomenal performance by Nick Foles. The Dolphins acquired Jalen Ramsey from the Rams for a third-round pick and tight end Hunter Long. This returns Ramsey to East Florida. Of course, he started his career with the Jaguars. This is a guy who won a Super Bowl with the Rams, a Dolphin team that had cut Byron Jones, but a team that has overall, I think, a very, very strong secondary and the Buffalo Bills could be on the decline after this year. It's it because made the AFC Championship game in the 2021. They made the divisional round and got knocked out at home this year. And so the, the Bills regressed a little bit. So they could be vulnerable in that AFC East. The New Orleans Saints re-signed Michael Thomas to a one-year $10 million deal with up to $5 million in additional incentives. Thomas initially seemed to not be returning to the Saints after they had restructured his contract to pay him the league minimum. However, he expressed excitement upon the team signing Derek Carr, very public excitement. And so it's a move that has somehow 
made sense. Thomas, over 6,000 receiving yards for his career. He is probably the best receiver in the history of the organization. Suffered from injuries the last couple of seasons, but still one of the best in the league. And now he will have really a top-line quarterback, the best quarterback he will have had since Drew Brees retired. The 49ers signed the number one ranked free agent, or at least according to NFL.com. That's Javon Hargrave, formerly of the Eagles, to a four-year, $84 million deal that will further solidify an already great front four, great front seven, great defense. It was a little tougher for the Niners. You think about it, it was a little tougher for the Niners after they traded DeForest Buckner after reaching the Super Bowl that it was a little tougher on their front four. But then, of course, you look at how they lost. Clearly, you know, biggest reason why they why the Niners lost was they lost their their top three quarterbacks. All three very strong quarterbacks, by the way. I mean, Lance hasn't quite proven, had the time to prove himself yet in the NFL, but Lance, Garoppolo, and then Purdy. Three guys who could all be Pro Bowl quarterbacks, and they lost all three of them by the NFC Championship game and had to go with Josh Johnson, who, of course, made the same play that Jalen Hurts eventually would in the Super Bowl, where he just fumbled but was never touched just an un, literally an unforced error and so that was uh, uh, huge but the other thing was the Niners could not stop the Eagles run game and in order to get through the NFC you have to get through whoever won last year and the Eagles are you know they're a good passing team with AJ Brown now and and Devonte Smith has, has had that load taken off him a bit as well as Dallas Goddard but the Eagles are so predicated predicated on the run game. So that's that's where you need to start. You contain them in the run game, you can, you can beat them. So a, a big signing there for the Niners who pay up, and, a, and not just that, they break up some of the Eagles' front four. The Detroit Lions made a splash in free agency. I will bring up briefly that they did bring in David Montgomery from Chicago, which should you know just be great for their already really good Running back team, but apparently Jamal Williams could be on his way out, and maybe Swift, I don't know. But the Lions are a really good run team because of their offensive line anyway. They also signed former 49ers quarterback Emmanuel, cornerback Emmanuel Mosley, and they bring in Cameron Sutton. Mosley to a one-year, $6 million deal. I did not see the financial terms with Sutton. Mosley last year was on pace for a career season, but tore his ACL after five games, had a pick six and five pass breakups in those games. Also had he's also a solid tackler, and so I don't know what this means with for Jeff Okuda necessarily, but the Niners, rather the Niners, the Lions will have again a very strong secondary, and boy did they make some noise last year. They probably should be expected to make the playoffs this season just based on that trajectory. Speaking of secondary and speaking of corners, the Cowboys acquire. One of the best corners in the league, at least when he was in New England, and Stephon Gilmore from the Indianapolis Colts for a fifth rounder. That's a significant move. That The secondary has been, I feel like, one of their, not necessarily even weaknesses, but just not one of their strong suits for a while. More significant, they cut Ezekiel Elliott after seven seasons. This is a move I think we saw coming once they put Tony Pollard in the backfield, and he really started to become, they, they were a tandem, but Tony Pollard was probably the more important back 
by the by this year, if not by last year. So Elliott, somebody's going to pick him up because he's still a very capable running back for sure and can still be a starter somewhere. But seven seasons is a long time for an NFL running back. So we'll see where he ends up and, and how much playing time he'll get. The Broncos signed right tackle Mike McGlinchey to a five-year, $87.5 million contract. Of course, their biggest issue this year was Russell Wilson, but part of that was the offensive line. And that that was one of his biggest complaints in Seattle. So securing a guy like that just to keep guys coming from off that right edge is really important, even for a guy who's such a scrambler. The Steelers signed Patrick Peterson. I'm not sure as to the financial aspect, but that strengthens an already outstanding defense, and it gives them some, you know, some more veteran experience. The Falcons signed Jesse Bates to a four-year, 64 point. I don't even know why I have to clarify this. A 64.02 million dollar deal. He, of course, made the interception that helped put the Bengals in the Super Bowl, but. It was a Bengal team that was so good in the second half of, of every game for so long and really helped make up that secondary. He's well worth the money. The Falcons also signed pro, their Pro Bowl guard, Chris Lindstrom, to a five-year, $105 million extension through 2028. The Bears signed Tremaine Edmonds to a four-year, $72 million deal. That's a big pickup from Buffalo. He's an excellent tackler, and it'll bring him some them some deeper playoff experience. The Bears, of course, also trade the number one pick to Carolina for DJ Moore, the number nine pick, a second rounder, a first rounder next year, and a second rounder in 2025. So that's huge to get two firsts. Really, it's a pick swap and a first and two seconds, and you get really a, a number one receiver for Justin Fields. Obviously they're going, they, they can look, they can pick an offensive lineman at nine. So that's, that that's their biggest issue of course, is getting protection for Justin Fields, who is, is obviously their guy now, at least from a running standpoint, but it seems like a very trustworthy quarterback. The Ravens released Calais Campbell, a six-time Pro Bowler, Walter Payton Man of the Year Award winner after he played 14 games last season. Just a really, you know, likable guy. I just I like to see somebody pick him up. The Commanders bringing back Deron Payne on a four-year $90 million deal that eschews the franchise tag. That is huge. Washington is one of the best front fours in the league. Maybe they can finally figure out the quarterback situation. We'll see. Speaking of which... The Buccaneers signed Baker Mayfield to a one-year, $8.5 million deal. This is, of course, some sort of contingency plan, I suppose, with Tom Brady retiring and maybe not coming back. I don't know. But with Kyle Trask being there, of course, they had picked him in the second round. I think it was in 2021 that they had selected him. So could be him, could be Mayfield. Mayfield showed... Signs of promise when he was in, when he's with the Rams, that one, that one game against the Raiders in particular on Thursday night football, two touchdowns late, uh, just going pretty much the length of the field in the final couple of minutes. So I still think there's something there. I, again, I think it's awful that he got cut, even from, even from a football standpoint. I think it's all, I think it's awful that he got cut for, 
Deshaun Watson, uh, especially from a human standpoint, but he he got axed for Deshaun Watson by Cleveland. Uh, disgraceful, disgraceful from a human standpoint, and I don't think the best use of money from a football standpoint, considering he had taken them to the playoffs and I think was still still a very promising QB. Last thing for football, Devin McCourty is retiring after 13 years, all in New England, three-time Super Bowl champion, five-time AFC champion, 35 career interceptions, 11 career forced fumbles, 971 tackles, two-time Pro Bowler, three-time second-team All-Pro. I will also say something that's pretty cool, especially as someone from New Jersey and someone who is just so fascinated by Belichick's drafting, recruiting, etc. He's a Rutgers product, and that's a, a program that's kind of rather undervalued. Belichick has gotten so many guys from Rutgers. Of course, his brother Jason, he later got in free agency. But uh, Logan Ryan's another one. Guys in the secondary in particular, but also guys like Mohamed Sanu at receiver. I think Steve Gregory. Then you look at guys like you know Chris Hogan went to Monmouth. And so he, he's such he's so good at drafting from... He's kind of small, Jersey, Northeast, Mid-Atlantic schools that are just kind of rather underappreciated. Because remember, this was also a time before Rutgers was in the Big Ten. This is when the Big East still had football and hadn't really, from a football standpoint, become the AAC yet. So this was you know, a, a really undervalued pick at the time. And New England has been built so much on you know, the, like that five-man secondary, bringing in the nickel. And so... Devin McCourty was so key to that in the second, I would argue it's two different New England dynasties, I would say in that second wave of the the Patriots championship success. And he, he got to play with his brother, they won a Super Bowl together. He is, I mean, maybe the best player in the secondary ever for the Patriots, aside from perhaps Ty Law. Maybe Rodney Harrison. Rodney Harrison was only there, for, I think, for like five years. I think actually played longer with the Chargers. So might be he might be the best safety the Patriots have ever had. And I would argue, and there's a potential he's a future Hall of Famer. I would argue he is a Hall of Famer. Again, New England for so many years has had sort of a no-name defense, and you know they're thought more of as, you know, being led by Brady, but that defense is so underrated. And one last thing, I found this so fascinating. McCourty joined only Ken Riley, Daryl Green, and Rondé Barber as defensive backs with 200 or more starts with one team. All three of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. There are only 24 players ever to start 200 or more games with one NFL team. And so to have that sort of longevity really is not just respect, it really means he did have that sort of talent. A couple more things. Joe Pepitone passed away this week at the age of 82. He was a New York native, played for the Yankees for eight seasons, was a three-time All-Star, played 12 years in total in his career, played for, I believe it was the Braves later on, and was not really appreciated like someone like Mickey Mantle, who he actually replaced in center field, before he eventually played first base, retired after 12 years. He also taught Don Mattingly how to play first as a minor league instructor. He was with the Yankees for a good portion of the 80s. 
So a guy that is that was integral to the organization, integral to his city, really big kind of supplementary player for some of the great Yankee teams of the early 60s, and then one of the stars for those teams that really struggled in the times when in the time, you know, when CBS owned them and before Steinbrenner bought the team in 73. So he will certainly be missed, and I, I can only imagine, you know, there are people from, you know, a couple generations before me in this area who will who will especially take this one tough. World Baseball Classic, just a quick review. So Cuba, Italy, Japan, Australia, and Venezuela have already advanced to the quarterfinals. Cuba has some the schedule is so weird. Cuba has already advanced to the semifinals after beating Australia four to three. They'll play against the winner of Venezuela and the Pool C winner. So we're still not sure yet. It's it's really really wild. Venezuela beat the Dominican Republic five to one behind three RBIs from David Peralta. They also defeated Puerto Rico behind a homer and five ribbies from Salvador Perez, who is, from an offensive standpoint, perhaps at his peak. That does it for us this week. I thank you so much for your time, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks here on Sports in the Waiting Room.